morning, if you would, uh, go ahead and turn over your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to touch back on Hosea 6 here in a few minutes, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and actually uh, verse 9 here in just a minute. This is already mentioned earlier, uh, Stephen mentioned it in your worship guide. Of course, every week we just want to keep reminding everybody that while uh, we're all having to deal with the normal day-to-day stuff of life, as well as all the weird stuff that is always going on lately, uh, don't stay on your own. Don't stay isolated. Don't stay where you're not getting some encouragement and uh, some teaching. I almost forgot I get to take this off right now. So sorry about that. Um, especially when it comes to the group Bible classes that we have. Um, just about every evening. You should note in your worship guide that a couple of those are getting postponed this week. Um, but one that we will be having will, of course, be this evening at 5 o'clock, the uh, class where we've been considering uh, Christians and our relationship and our perspective on politics and government. I just wanted to say something uh, right here about this. I love that class so much. All the good contributions by everybody, really thoughtful stuff, thought-provoking stuff, challenging each other on ideas but with great attitudes and really a Christ-like spirit. And I just want to commend everybody who's participating in that. And if you haven't been, don't worry about it. You missed a couple of weeks, but just jump in. And uh, we're going to be talking tonight about Jesus and his relationship to politics and then the early church's relationship to the politics of their day and try to think about it, um, what it teaches us. Of course, this, is, this class has not been taught in a vacuum. Uh, we're, we're talking about it right now for a reason because this is the conversation and the dialogue in our nation right now where we live. Uh, is about politics and government and how to think about all that stuff. Uh, and I just keep on waiting. You know, you guys know how this goes. Every single election, um, there's always a scandal that comes out at some point, right? Uh, or even if it's not in an election, it's after someone gets into office. Something comes out about them. Um, maybe it's some sort of sexual impropriety. Maybe it's some sort of dirty business deal. Maybe it's some sort of lie that uh, this official tells the public to further their, um, their wishes about how things should go. Uh, sometimes it's about uh, family members or friends or church members or what somebody wears. There's always scandal associated with politics. But here's the funny thing. Uh, all the scandals that come out with uh, political figures and governmental figures, they're all stuff that if it happened to one of our friends or happened with one of us, it wouldn't be nearly as big of a deal. And I don't even just mean um, like... It wouldn't be as big of a deal nationally. That's obviously true. We're not as influential as these people. But even if it happened personally, a lot of the things that turn into really, really big deals uh, in our national conversation, if they happen on a smaller scale, they wouldn't be all that much of a thing. You ever thought about that and how that's kind of weird? We hold people to a higher standard. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. It actually makes perfect sense. Because the more influential and the more powerful someone becomes, the more we analyze everything about what they do. And so whenever there's some sort of misdeed that's common to many, many people, we see it as a scandal. It's a really big deal. Jesus was scandalous. You ever think about that? Jesus was scandalous. He was very influential. He was powerful. He would have, there, there are texts that talk about how there were thousands of people just walking around following him. Can you imagine that? Here's this Jewish rabbi, regular looking fella, just walking through the countryside and look behind him and there's thousands of people following him. That's who Jesus was. That's how powerful and important he was in his day and in his society. And so it makes sense that there was scandal that would arise in relationship to him. But the difference in the scandals with Jesus and the scandals that we see in influential people today the scandals of Jesus were either completely manufactured, just made up out of nothing, or they were scandals because, not because Jesus actually did anything wrong, 
because people just didn't like what he was doing. Matthew chapter 9 is one of the earliest scandals in Jesus' career as a preacher and rabbi and eventually the savior of the world. And I'd like to read with you this text and look at this, uh, this great scandal, what made Jesus scandalous to the people of his day and what this story teaches us. So first, we'll look at the story, just try to understand it, see it, try to be there with Jesus. Think about what, it, what Jesus was teaching to the people of his day and then how it relates to us. Matthew chapter 9, really starting in verse 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew who was sitting at, his, uh, at the tax collector's booth. Because he was a tax collector, by the way. Other, other accounts of this say his tax booth. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy or compassion, here's my say, and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus and the tax collectors. If you've read much of the story of Jesus or heard stories of Jesus, you've probably heard some of these. This wasn't an uncommon occurrence for Jesus to be spending time with folks that everybody else thought he shouldn't have been spending time with. Uh, but I love the way this story starts. So Jesus, at this point, is already gaining a lot of popularity. He's performing great miracles. Verse 8 talks about how the crowd that had seen his last miracle, they were awestruck, and they said, we've never seen anything like this. And so Jesus leaves that place, and he goes along, and he comes across Matthew, who's sitting at his, his tax booth. So tax collectors, some of this is a refresher for some of you. Some of this may be new information, so I'll just remind us of this. Tax collectors in the Roman world were different than uh, the way we think about tax collectors. For us, I don't even know who our tax collectors are. I never see them. I bet that's for their own protection that we never get to see them or know who they are. So they're in a, in a back room somewhere taking it. But these people would just be out. They'd just be out on the street collecting taxes from people or, or whatever or you know, overseeing the collection of taxes. Uh, and background on these people, what the Romans would do, you know, the Roman Empire was humongous, and it would you know, conquer these peoples, but they would leave them there, and they would just install like Roman overlords in these various locations throughout their empire. And to be able to collect tax revenue, to be able to support their, uh, their imperial agenda, they would have to take taxes from these people that they conquered. And so what would happen is, a, a local person would go, at least typically is how it worked, a local person would go to Rome and bid for the right to be the tax collector in a certain city or town or region or whatever. So basically you were going and you'd say, I'll pay this much to take the position of being tax collector. And you say, why would they ever do that? Well, because being a tax collector is a lucrative job. For one, it's a government job, so that's pretty nice. And uh, secondly, what many of the tax collectors, perhaps most of them would do, is they wouldn't just take what the Roman Empire called for, but they'd take a little extra, you know. Hey, here's the tax rate. You'd be like, wait, I thought Rome only was asking for, I don't know, 12%, and you're asking for 15 be like, don't ask any questions or I'll go get this Roman centurion. He'll take you to jail. So you had to give it because you couldn't really fact check these guys. So then you're just, they're, they're just lining their pockets with money uh, from the taxes that they're collecting. 
So imagine being a person who one of your neighbors, friends, family members, whatever, they go and begin serving as a tax collector, serving, probably a bad word to use. They begin uh, 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 enslaving you and your neighbors as a tax collector. You wouldn't like it very much. For one, they're taking your money. For two, they're betraying you. And for three, they're just, at least you would perceive most of them to be dirty, rotten crooks. Now, for sure, some of those uh, people who would be responsible for collecting taxes certainly would have had maybe people under them that were working for them. So that doesn't mean that every single tax collector actually was a crook, but they were perceived that way. You even see it in this text and in other texts that whenever tax collectors are discussed, uh, they're always accompanied by sinners. It's never just tax collectors. It's tax collectors and sinners. And also, tax collectors aren't lumped in with the rest of the sinners. It's like there's the sinners, the bad people, and then the tax collectors, the really bad people. They were hated. So here Jesus comes up on Matthew, the tax collector, sitting in his tax booth. Imagine being Peter, Andrew, James, John, whichever of the disciples, and you're walking with Jesus, and Jesus stops and he looks for a second at Matthew. And you think, here we go. He's going to get it. I love it when Jesus does this. He's just going to tear this guy a new one for how horrible he is, how wicked he is, how unjust he is. He's going to just destroy this guy. But instead of preaching a sermon to tear this man apart, Jesus says, hey, come follow me. Follow me. Oh, Peter, I'm thinking, wait. That's the same thing you told me, Jesus. Are you saying that he and I are, we get to both, we're, that doesn't seem right at all. Then they go on. It must have been so awkward, by the way. Did Matthew collect their taxes whenever Peter, Andrew, James, and John would make money from their fish? Was he one of the guys? I don't know, but you can imagine it. So they walk on, and, and the text goes on to say in verse 10 that, that Jesus doesn't say, follow me, and then there they go. Jesus actually ends up at some point letting Matthew take the lead in this uh, walk because they end up at Matthew's house. Now, I know Matthew, uh, the, the account here, Matthew says, the house, by the way, this is Matthew's account of what happened. He's the writer of this story about uh, his relationship with Jesus. Uh, when you look at some of the other accounts, Mark and Luke record this story also in Mark 2 and Luke 5. Uh, it's, it's clear that this wasn't just a house they went to. This was Matthew's house. So Jesus not only says, Matthew, you dirty, rotten, sc uh, uh, scoundrel tax collector, you get to be one of my followers, but Matthew, I'm going to go to your house. And it gets worse than that. It's not just that Jesus goes into the house, allows a tax collector to be one of his followers, or goes into the house of the tax collector. It goes in, and look at what the text says again there in verse 10. It says, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus. I think it's Mark's account that actually says, because there were many who followed him. There were many of these people. In other words, Matthew wasn't the only one. I don't know, maybe he was one of the first ones, but somehow, some way, it became clear that Jesus Business was open. If you wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, no matter what kind of sinner you were, no matter what kind of outcast you were, no matter how crooked you were in the eyes of society, you had a place with Jesus. So here Jesus is sitting at dinner. By the way, do you ever think about what it was like whenever Jesus had dinner with sinners? Uh, I, I just imagine it, right? Somebody comes in and they just foul mouthed and they just start cursing and swearing and they look down the dinner table and Jesus just kind of looks at them. It's like, no, oh, come on in. Or somebody brings their mistress with, uh, with them to dinner. And Jesus says, oh, tell me your wife's name. And the person says, uh, this is not my wife. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. I, know. I just want to make sure you know. You know what I'm saying? Like those kinds of conversations, we know those happen because Jesus would do that all the time to people. Anyway, as awkward as it must have been sometimes for sinners, it didn't seem to push them away because there were a lot of them there. No matter what challenges Jesus issued to the sinners, they knew that they belonged at his table. They knew that they had a place with him. 
So uh, there they sit and they eat. And I don't know how Peter, Andrew, James, and John felt, but I think I have an idea because at this dinner, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the people who would have been perceived the exact opposite as the tax collectors. If tax collectors are the worst and hated in society, Pharisees would have been revered by most Jews. I mean, they knew the law front and back, and they were really pious, and they would offer beautiful prayers, and they were the ones you would come to for questions, and they would go to far-off lands to convert people to the faith of Yahweh and to teach Torah in people far away from Jerusalem. So, I mean, these were just the best of the best, you know? And so they come up because it's their job to police all the scandals among the religious community. And so they wanted to see what was going on with this Jesus of Nazareth character. And they come up, and you see in verse uh, 11, they said to his disciples, not to him, but they said to his disciples. Uh, I'm, I'm mixing up whether it's Mark or Luke, but one of them says they complained to his disciples. So it's clear that this wasn't like, hey, this is really interesting. What are we doing here? No, it was like, what's wrong with your teacher, man? What's wrong with your teacher that he, and therefore y'all, all eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'm guessing the other disciples didn't really know what to say because they don't answer. Jesus has to step in and answer the question for them. And he answers with these words that are so um, loaded with, with beauty and um, challenge for us, I think. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus says, why are you guys asking stupid questions? These are my people. Not like I agree with what they're doing. I don't. I called them. I didn't just wave and say, have a nice life. I called them to come to me, to follow me. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to work on them. I'm going to do something with them. But this is what I came for. Now, you could read this and say, Jesus is saying, hey, Pharisees, you guys are righteous. I don't need to have dinner with y'all. I need to have dinner with the sinners. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think actually Jesus' point is, listen, you're trying to, you are trying to categorize. There are some righteous people and some sinner people. And Jesus, as a self-respecting rabbi of the Jewish people, should be with the righteous people. And you're accusing me of being with the sinner people. What I'm telling you is... I came to heal. I came to teach. I came to repair. I came to fix up sinners. And you better get in line because that's y'all too. That's implied by the fact that he quotes this passage. I skipped over, of course, the heart of this exhortation, which, by the way, is only found in Matthew. Maybe Matthew is a little more personal, close to the scene, so he remembered every last bit of what Jesus said. The other accounts don't include this basis because Jesus says, listen, I'm here to heal sinners. I'm here to not just call the righteous, but sinners. And by the way, I'll add Luke adds the detail to repentance. We'll come back to that in a minute, I think. But Jesus bases his reasoning for sitting here at the table with sinners on this text that Nelson read for us in Hosea chapter 6. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Uh, the Pharisees would have done lots of sacrifices. I mean, they were people who would have made sure. They made sure when they had little, you guys have little plants. I bet a lot of you these days have plants, you know, try to just make yourself happy. You got little plants in the, in the uh, window and stuff. Listen, the Pharisees, when they had little window plants, they'd take out, clip off the tiniest little leaves to offer them as sacrifices to God. And so they were really into sacrifice. Or we might say outward acts of religious piety. But they were missing some bigger stuff in terms of their heart. And that's what Jesus points out here with this. Let me tell you a little bit about the quote that Nelson read for us in Hosea 6. And if you want to turn back there, we'll reference it lightly here in just a minute. Uh, the book of Hosea, I'm not sure how many of you have read that. It's, um, well, you want to talk about scandals. It's the most scandalous book in the Old Testament. Here's how it starts. 
the people of Israel are just being terrible. They're worshiping all kinds of other gods, engaging in all kinds of unjust, wicked practices. They're making sure that people who are trying to do righteousness are stifled and people who are doing wickedness are elevated. It was a horrible, horrible environment. And it all root, the, the root of it all came back to their problem of, the way God says it, cheating on Him. Instead of being loyal and faithful to Him, they would cheat on Him with all kinds of other gods. So in order to show them how serious the situation was, God comes to Hosea the prophet. And he says, Hosea, this is the very first line in, in the book of Hosea. Go find yourself a prostitute and marry her. Marry a prostitute. And then have children with her. And so he does that. And then God says, and know that she's going to leave you eventually. And she does. Um, by the way, can you imagine living like that as Hosea? You're just trying to do God's work. You're trying to be a prophet. And then God tells you to go marry a woman who has no interest in being loyal to you who ends up taking all the good that you give her and she abandons you to go find other lovers. It'd be heartbreaking. But the purpose of that illustration that God um, called his prophet to, to, to demonstrate to the people was to show, this is what you're doing to me, Israel. My special people. You're supposed to have this special relationship with me. And you guys don't even know me. There's one text in Hosea that says, My people perished for lack of knowledge. Part of that meant they didn't know literally it was in their scriptures, but part of it, they didn't know God anymore. They had lost God. They had just gone so far away, they had lost track of the whole thing. And then we come to our text that was read earlier that Jesus references here. And at the beginning of Hosea chapter 6, uh, there's a statement from the people. Hey, you know what? We realize it. Let us turn back. Let's go back to the God. You know, he's, he's torn us. Oh, notice the, notice the language is so relevant to what Jesus said. When they talk, he's, let's return. He has torn us, verse 1 of Hosea 6, but he will heal us. We need healing. We've betrayed God, and we need to be healed. And so let's go. We'll come back to the Lord. He'll be good to us. He'll save us, all this kind of stuff. And God says in verse 4, what? What am I supposed to do with you? What am I supposed to do with you? Your devotion to me, it's like clouds in the morning. It's like dew on the ground. I mean, it's here right now, but you and I both know it'll be gone tomorrow. What am I supposed to do with you? And then God goes on to issue the challenge. He says, listen, I've sent my prophets and they've torn themselves up and they're tearing you up with their words because y'all just keep on living in sin. And then in verse 6, uh, we have our, our, our quote that Jesus references in our story uh, at the dinner table there with the sinners and the Pharisees. Verse 6, and I want you to notice this if you're there in Hosea chapter 6. What does your say here? Look at this. Uh, Hosea 6 and verse 6 says, For I delight in, and mine says, not compassion or mercy, it says I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Uh, that seems kind of different, right? In uh, Matthew 9, the quote is compassion, or yours might have said mercy, something like that. But here in Hosea, the word is steadfast love, or loyalty, or faithfulness. You know, the word that gets translated as mercy in some places, loyalty in others, it was a, a really um, uh, dynamic word in Jewish thought and in God's way of talking with his people. And it spoke to, yes, mercy, just feeling something for someone, but it was more about a commitment. I think we've talked about this at various times before. And the idea here is that God is saying, I want you to be committed to me like a, a wife should be to her husband, like a husband should be to her wife. And you guys aren't doing that. You're offering sacrifices, but you're offering sacrifice to other gods too. You guys are not committed to me. Now, one of the most obvious manifestations of their lack of commitment to God 
was their, their poor treatment of one another. We're not going to do it for sake of time, but if you kept reading from this point in Hosea, what God points out is like, look, here's the evidence that you guys don't get it. That's the whole point, by the way. You don't get it. You think offering sacrifices, having some acts of religious piety and outward devotion are good enough, but it's not coming from a real place. You're not really committed to me. And one of the best ways you can see that isn't that when you guys deal with each other, you treat each other like trash. People that I made in my image, people that I love, my holy people, you just trash them. You ignore them. You mistreat them. You perpetuate injustices among them. You see how Jesus is relating this back at the dinner table? So go back now in your mind or if you want to in the text in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus didn't pick this uh, just out of a hat. Uh, this, uh, this is a cool quote. I'll use it right now. At this dinner table, there were some people who were loyal to God or who desired to be loyal to God. And there were some people who just wanted to have an outward form of religiosity. Now, it wasn't the people that we would have expected if we had been there at the dinner table. We would have thought, oh, the Pharisees, they're the real ones. And these sinners, they're just acting sort of religious. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you need to go and learn what this means. You guys do not get it. You don't get it. This thing isn't about outward acts of piety, pretending like you're religious. What it's about is commitment, loyalty. And in two ways, you should see that here at this dinner table. You know what you should see? You should see it in me, Jesus says. As I show mercy to these people who desperately need it. They're the outcasts, people that you should have been serving, Pharisees. You've pushed them out. You've despised them. You've shunned them. You've mistreated them. I am showing them mercy. I'm showing loyalty to God's will in treating these people the way they ought to be treated, even though they're sinners. Actually, because they're sinners. And also, you should see in these people their deep desire for God. And that's what we want. Listen, Matthew couldn't make up for all the sins of his past. The other people at the dinner table, they probably couldn't repay God for, no, no way they could repay God for all the bad things they had done. And actually, the tax collectors and sinners who were following Jesus saying, Jesus, tell me about my life, tell me how to do, tell me what to be, they were going to mess up a lot more. And they weren't going to be able to Make up for those future failings. Jesus said, that's okay. By the way, that doesn't mean that doing bad things is okay. But it means not being always getting everything right. That's okay. Jesus said, what I want you to do is come follow me. Or the way God would say it back in Hosea, I know you're going to mess up. That's not my issue. My issue is that you're cheating on me. You're abandoning this covenant. You're not loyal to me. All right, what does this story mean for us? Maybe put it another way. When everybody walked away from this dinner table in Matthew 9, what lessons did they learn about Jesus? And what lessons are we supposed to learn about Jesus? This scandalous figure that a lot of people thought, what is he doing? How dare he? What are we supposed to learn from this? Here's the first thing I'd say from, uh, from this story that we're supposed to learn. Is that Jesus came, he says, he gives us his, I, I came to call sinners. And in coming to call sinners, Jesus came to give us a new view of God's community. I know that's a buzzy word that gets thrown around a lot in a lot of different settings, but I want to use that uh, in this setting. You know, the, the Pharisees thought there were certain people that belong in our neighborhood and certain people that don't. We got a nice HOA here for the kinds of requirements of the type of person that we want in God's neighborhood. And you know what? Tax collectors and sinners, they're not invited. Jesus throws all that around and says, we're done with that. 
Whatever you thought about God's community, about God's neighborhood, that's not it anymore. God's neighborhood looks a lot different. And it's not based on some sort of outward acts of piety or, or hollow devotion. It's about are you committed to God from your heart to be with Him? I think this is so relevant for us to realize and remember in two respects. One, it relates to uh, our view of each other. You know, in a, in a church family, it's easy to uh, do a lot of things uh, to hurt each other. Sometimes it's in moments of weakness, we do it on purpose because we're not totally healed up yet. Sometimes we do these things uh, unintentionally. You just bump into each other. You do things, say things, don't do things, don't say things that people wanted. And uh, that's going to happen. How do you react whenever that happens? One reaction is to just withdraw. I'm not doing this. I don't want to be with the sinners. You know, I've found some of the righteous people in this church. I don't want to be with any of the sinners anymore. I don't want to hang out with those people who treat me wrong or don't do right by me. What Jesus teaches us here is you can't have that kind of attitude. You can't have that kind of attitude. Because you know what? If you're in Jesus' neighborhood, or maybe put it in the language of this story, if you're at Jesus' table, you're sitting down as a sinner next to a bunch of sinners. So you've got to get used to having sins committed against you. People aren't always going to treat you perfectly. That doesn't excuse their behavior, by the way. That doesn't mean you just sit there and don't say anything about it. Actually, you're supposed to say something about it. Just like Jesus would say something about it. We'll get more to that in just a second. But get comfortable with the idea that people are not always going to do right by you. You're not always going to be very comfortable there. It also changes the way we treat people in the world. I hope this doesn't happen consciously. But I'd like to challenge you to, to ask yourself, does this ever happen uh, subconsciously or unconsciously in your relationships? You're around some people and you think, man, if I could get them to read the Bible with me and learn about Jesus, I think they'd be a really good Christian. They're so nice already. They're so kind. They're so thoughtful. They're, you know, really, they have a lot of integrity. I think they could be a good Christian. Meanwhile, you meet some other people and you're like, yeah, I'll just pray for them and we'll see what God does in the end. You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't think like that. Don't think like that. The people at Jesus' table are not the people that we think belong there. It's the people who need to be there, which is all of us. We've got to change the way we view Jesus' table, Jesus' community, understanding that it's for all those who sin, which is every single person that does or will ever live. Jesus coming to call sinners teaches us a new view of God's community. And we need to live in accordance with that. Second thing this story teaches us is that Jesus calls everyone to repent. Jesus calls everyone to repent. Matthew, get up from your tax booth. Follow me. And he did. And you know at that dinner party, those hypotheticals we were throwing out earlier about the kinds of conversations Jesus was having about sins, we know that he had them. And by the way, if you question that, just go read any of the teachings of Jesus about any moral issue. Jesus was incredibly blunt and confrontational about sins. Jesus would always call people to repentance. And I noted this earlier, but in Luke 5 and verse 32, Luke's account of this story, that detail is included. Where Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To repentance. Uh, that means that the Pharisees needed to repent of their arrogance and their mistreatment of others. That meant the tax collectors needed to repent of any injustices they would commit in their financial dealings. 
That meant that those who were liars or sexually immoral or selfish or hateful or whatever sin Jesus ever talked about, they need to repent. If we come to Jesus' table, he's calling us to repentance. Uh, and I love, while, while the notion of repentance, I think when we hit, ooh, that's, that's like harsh and hard, and I don't really love that very much, and it kind of makes me scared even sometimes. Notice the way Jesus speaks about it, or the, the, the analogy Jesus used to talk about what he's calling people to. He called sinners those who are sick, those who are sick, who need a physician or need healing. Whenever you think about repentance from sin, I think sometimes we think like, okay, I did some bad stuff and I'm in debt, and now I need to pay back my debts by repentance. There's a real sense in which sin should be thought of as debt. But the repayment isn't our repentance. Like that's not the repayment is the death of Jesus on the cross. I think probably a more ever-present, um, useful analogy is this analogy of thinking about our sins as sickness. And the reason you need to repent is because you need to be going into physical therapy. You need to be going into some kind of rehab. You need some surgery to be done on your heart. Uh, you need to, to rehab your diet because you're messing yourself up and you're making yourself sick. So you need to change the way you eat so that you'll be healed, so that you'll be healthy once again. And then, by the way, that's, remember, that's what they said back in Hosea. Even, even they understood. He has torn us, but he will heal us. God actually promised that. This is another fun if you want to go read it later. Hosea 14 and verse 4. God said, I will heal my people. But the call was to be loyal to him, to repent, to come, to follow that's what repentance is all about. It's about finding healing, which means I need to acknowledge that I am sick, that I'm not really okay. And i got to say, a lot of us are very willing to acknowledge that. Uh, how many of your friends don't go to therapy of some sort? You guys, like, just think about that for a second. How many of your friends don't go to some form of therapy? By the way, I'm not saying like Jesus is talking about therapy in that sense, but here's my point. The reason people go to therapy is they look at the mirror and they say, I got something wrong. There's something broken. I'm sick. I need some help here. Jesus said, yeah, you do. Come here. Come over here. I want to heal you. Now I need you to repent. I need you to turn away from your sins. I need you to listen to what I have to say. And you don't have to nail it all in a day. You don't have to figure this whole thing out just like that. But I need you to repent. And come to me so that I can heal you. And that goes for the religious good, good old person. It goes for the person who's the worst sinner that society could ever think of. Jesus says, come to me. You guys know the line in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. Matthew 8 and verse 16 says it this way. In talking about the things Jesus did when he would heal people of various diseases, it was all pointing toward the ultimate healing he provided. Matthew 8 and verse 16 says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Which when Isaiah wrote that, so long before this in Isaiah 53... It was about the diseases of sin. God will take that away if you come. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance so that we may be healed. Last thing that I'm going to say, there's probably many more things, and you can meditate on this and, and get so much joy out of it, I'm sure. The last thing I'm going to say as far as lessons we learn, not only does Jesus teach us to have a new view of God's community and our place in it, Jesus here in calling sinners and having dinner with the sinners teaches us to repent is necessary for healing. Thirdly, this story in Jesus' treatment of these people teaches us 
that Jesus will take anybody. And actually, it's more than that he'll take anybody. Jesus wants everybody. You know, Jesus just could have walked by the tax booth that Matthew said, hey, I'm going to be preaching later. You should come out, hear the sermon, get some good word. He doesn't do that. He tells Matthew, the tax collector, the dirtiest of all the criminals, of all the sinners, you come, follow me. And actually, in the very next chapter, not only is Jesus going to say, hey, Matthew, you can just walk around with me. He makes Matthew one of his 12, like his, his special ops unit to go out and preach the gospel and to have authority directly from him. One of the apostles, he says, Matthew, the tax collector, the dirty, rotten sinner, get over here. You guys remember back when you were a kid getting picked in gym class for, uh, for sports? Remember what that was like standing there and you're like, okay. Don't be last, just don't be last. Just don't. Some of y'all probably will probably pray the first one. But some of us, that was our goal. Don't be last. You know, I think sometimes uh, as sinners, that's kind of what we think with Jesus. Just let me in. Just please let me in. Just don't, just don't, just don't give up on me yet. Or we don't even come out to play. Because we think there's no chance we get picked on the team. Jesus. Jesus only picks the people that everybody else would say should be last. Jesus says, get over here. I want you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've been. And listen, you're going to have to repent. And also, you're going to have to be with a bunch of other dirty, rotten sinners, and you're not going to like their sins. You don't even really like yours. You're not going to like theirs either. But I want you. Because, and because look at the language that he says. Verse 13, I did not come. You understand what Jesus is saying here? This isn't just like Jesus saying, this is how I live, you know, back off. Jesus is saying, this is my mission statement. The, the scandal is bigger than you even knew. Because back in heaven, before I left my Father's throne, this is what it was all about. I came to earth for the sinners. That's what I wanted. I didn't want people who thought they had it all figured out. I wanted the people who recognized that they desperately need me. And I'm here to show them that I desperately want them. I don't know how you feel about Jesus all the time. I'm pretty confident that for a lot of us, we wonder about that. We think Jesus will put up with us. We think it's probably a little more likely that he's a little mad at us and he'd rather we just kind of drift away. I'm telling you right now, sit down at that table. Look around at the table. Look who's there. And know that no matter who you are, no matter what problems you have, no matter what you've done, Jesus came because he wants you. He said it this way in Matthew 11 and verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are sick, all you who have burdened yourselves with your sins and your failures and your guilt and your shame. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No more sleepless nights. No more anxiety over whether God could love me or not or whether he would want me or not. No more of that. And Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you who have already got it pretty much figured out and worked out and you're in good shape. No, Jesus said, listen, all you who are tired and poor and broken down and messed up and have messed yourselves up, come to me. I know nobody else wants you. I know you're not welcome at any other table or in any other neighborhood, but you are welcome here. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, repent. Put on my guidance for your life so that I can heal you. Take my yoke. And it will be challenging sometimes. But I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest 
for your soul, down deep, in the part of you that you don't even always know how to articulate what's going on or what's wrong or what you need. I've got what you need, Jesus said. I came to call you, the sinners, the broken, the weary, to give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, in that passage in Hosea 6, the people said, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. And God says, Man, I don't know if it's going to work, though. And it didn't for centuries. Because we never saw this. It does work now. Jesus came to call sinners, to heal the sick, to strengthen the weak. He came to be our friend. And truly, none else could heal all our soul's diseases but one, Jesus, who came to call sinners. And thank God for that. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to issue a call of repentance that promises healing and rest and fullness and joy and all the stuff that we're looking for. Father, we pray that you give us the courage and the faith to follow wherever Jesus leads us. Lord, thank you for being willing to come down and be with us and to sit with us and to welcome us and to transform us and heal us and make us what we ought to be. Give us confidence more and more every day in your love for us that you showed throughout your life of selflessness and sacrifice and ultimately that you showed us in the cross. We've come together to honor you and remember what you've done and to recommit our hearts in loyalty to you and in love for one another. And we pray that this moment would be one that you'd, uh, in your spirit, fill us more and more and make us what we ought to be. Amen.